and this is just the Dharma talk, and um, your voices won't be on it. I think you all know that. So, um, well, I am so happy that we're here. I'm so happy to be sharing tonight what I have. Some of you were here last week for um, the Wild Hope talk. I think, Antoinette, you were at Wild Hope, and I think maybe Tanya was. And I don't know, Linda, were you here last week? No. Well, this is building on the talk last week, which was built in turn on an article I read by a, a Buddhist teacher named Joan Halifax about a, a different way of seeing hope. And um, I won't go into it. I'm going to put the link to the article in the chat at some point so that you can copy and paste it. It is a marvelous, marvelous, inspiring article. It's not too long. And um, so I want to blend some of that in with reflecting on uh, the Civil Rights Movement and Dr. Martin Luther King, um, his birthday having just passed. And But first, we're going to watch this video of Joanna Macy, and I think a lot of you know who she is. Buddhist, ecologist, systems thinker, lecturer, author, wise elder, woman in her 90s. Um, a great mentor to many people, many generations. She's been a great mentor to me, and she's now the mentor for children, people, children, my son's age, and even younger. So um, she spoke at the 2009 Bioneers Conference, and the Bioneers is an environmental mega conference, uh, sort of like TED Talks for environmentalists, and amazing speakers from all over the world come, and music, and workshops, and craft, you know, um, displays, I forget what you call them, booths. It's quite something. And she gave a talk that I just blew me away. I wasn't there, but I saw it on, on YouTube recently. Blew me away, and I thought, we have got to hear this because it's so helpful in this time of climate disruption, pandemic surging, releasing, surging. It's like a, this wild tsunami coming in, going out, sweeping us away. Just when we get our feet under the ground, we're swept away again. And she has some pretty wise things to say about that. So what we're going to do is watch the video. It's about 16 minutes long. Listen to it, really. It's, it's, a, it's a talk, but you can look at her. She's wonderful to look at. And then, um, I w hopefully, you'll have you have some pen and a pen and some paper or a journal nearby. Um, there's a, a little. I think you might want to do a little bit of writing after you hear the talk, or even while you hear it. I mean, don't get. I would encourage you not to get caught up in taking a lot of notes because you know how that takes you away from the present experience. Perhaps better to let it in, and then afterwards we'll do just a little writing about what did, that what came in that stays right here. So um, we'll do that, and then I'm going to do a little talk um, relating Martin Luther King and Gandhi and the Buddha to all of this. It's going to be quite a night. Okay, so let me get the screen share set up here. Great. Okay, so I'm thinking you can probably all see this. Just uh, unmute yourself and tell me if you're having any problems. Well, that's what I want to talk about today. We live in this time of radical uncertainty. That is the darkness of our age, I think. This 
anguish of uncertainty in which we live. It doesn't need to be an anguish, this awakeness of uncertainty. Well, for Americans aren't used to that, you know. <laughs> we were founded on not only unflagging optimism, but we like to ensure that um, we can count on certain things. We like to be uh, confident about where we put our efforts. We want to be sure it's going to work. Well, we're in a situation where that kind of sureness can't happen. And so what I want to talk about this morning is the gifts of uncertainty. The promise of this dark age are the gifts that we can harvest from uncertainty itself. Five of them. I like to count things on fingers of one hand. <laughs> Here are the gifts that I've toted up, and I invite you to find some more. What do we get from uncertainty? We get the present moment, for one thing. We get a fresh recognition of the power of intention. We get the befriending of our pain and the great mystery that it brings us. We get our solidarity with all our relations. And we get an immensity of time, our true age. So that, that's what I want to talk about now. When you drop the need to be hopeful or hopeless, when you recognize that these are just feelings, that they might have more to do with what you had for breakfast or what somebody said to you in the last phone call. You don't put so much weight on them. Uncertainty can free us from the need to be constantly taking our emotional temperature as to how optimistic or pessimistic we are in the moment. Do you tap Goliath? David on the shoulders, he's going out to uh, fight Goliath or Frodo. Wait a minute, are you hopeful? Get out of my way. I've got something to do. And in that, just that, that game of hopeful, hopeless is conjectural. It takes you out of the immediacy of the moment, which is where you're moving and where your strength is and your alertness. Only in the present moment can you see what you're seeing. Only in the present moment can you feel what you're feeling. Only in the present moment can you take that step. So that's the second gift of this uncertainty, is that choice. Only in the present moment can we choose just what we're going to do. And it has been thrilling to me, both as a scholar of systems and of Buddhist teachings, 
to see that this capacity to choose is what is seen as the actual essence or nature of a self. We are in our truest being a verb, and the verb is what we're choosing to do. I used to think that it was more important what the results were that I uh, achieved in whatever I was bent on doing, and that my motivation I took for granted. Oh, well, it's always there, you know. I can count on myself to care, for heaven's sakes. But then, then I realized that if I lose that motivation, lose that caring, I have nothing on which to intend. I'm at sea. And I can see why the Buddhist teachers put such great prize on bodhicitta, that motivation for the welfare of all. So I, we want to, uh, don't take that for granted, cherish it, blow on that little ember, make it into a flame. As Jesus said, and I, it comes right along with that bodhicitta, ye are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loose has lost its savor, wherewith will it be salted? That's what intention is like. Intention, your motivation, that you give a damn. Don't take that for granted. Bless it, that itch, that needing to take part. Thirdly, we're talking about the gifts of uncertainty. The courage to feel what you feel in the present moment. As you become present to your world, then you feel what you're carrying. That usually if you're being rushed and hurried out of your minds, you don't bother paying. You try to pave it over, block it down, shut it down, turn away, turn it off. But try as we might, it comes up again. The grief. The outrage. The raw fear. What in God's name are we doing to our world and to each other? And you now are not going to fall for the ploy of the industrial growth society to pathologize that pain. Hear me? Don't let people, therapists or well-meaning friends, try to explain it away in terms of your personal biography or that time of month. It is a measure of your evolution. It is a measure of your humanity. It is a measure of your nobility that you have a heart, mind big enough to see and empathize with the outrage being inflicted on our world and all our relations. I think I better stop ranting, you know. I just caught myself. So... <laughs> Thank you.
Let me give you a poem as well. This is the last sonnet to Orpheus by Rainer Maria Rilke. And it holds all the gifts of uncertainty. Quiet friend who has come so far. Feel how your breathing makes more space around you. Right here, right now. Let this darkness be a bell tower and you the bell. And as you ring, what batters you becomes your strength. Swaying back and forth into the change. What's it like, this intensity of pain? If the drink is bitter, turn yourself to wine. In this uncontainable darkness, be the mystery at the crossroads of your senses, the meaning discovered there. And if the world has ceased to hear you, say to the silent earth, I flow, and to the rushing water speak, I am. Oh, see, my brothers and sisters, that, as the poet saw, that is the meaning of your, the pain we feel for the suffering in our world. It means that we are inextricably livingly connected. It is our body being savaged. And we are not separate. There is nothing that will ever happen. No cowardice, no folly, no failure will ever sever you from the living body of earth because that's what you are. And this earth is waking up now. So you rest in that knowing. And know also then that the pain that comes up is just a gateway into which you go into a communion with the living world that is fearless. And that the pain for our world and the love for it are but two sides of the same coin. Indeed, that is so. Now, I have to hurry up. Either f there are f two other gifts, right? One is solidarity. But we're feeling that we're talking about that. Solidarity with the life forms. It was so beautiful to hear Nina talk about from dolphin to prairie dog that we're waking up into the family to our kith and kin. We're linking arms. And uh, this blessed unrest, as Paul Hawkins says, this largest social movement in history, yes, and it's bringing in all of their life forms and we're linking arms. And we must open our eyes. This is what I love about systems theory, is it helps us see 
Uh, but any good cook can see this when you make a stew or a soup. The synergies, the emergent properties that come. That is my substitute for hope. And it's a lot better because with every step you take, something new happens with every relationship, with every person you trust, with every person you come clean to and clear to, something happens. And now the last gift, well, it's that immensity of time. You see, we live in a time when our karma that is the consequences of our actions, thanks to science and the industrial capitalism, extends into geological time, reaches of time, hundreds of thousands of generations. I learned this in my work around nuclear waste. The decisions we make right now in a multitude of activities will have direct effect on whether future generations, centuries and centuries, millennia from now, will be able to be born sound of mind and body. You better believe that. So the future ones are therefore in our actions right here now. Feathered ones and scaled ones. And so are the ancestors by the same token. I want you to feel them present along with the brothers and sisters of all species and forms of beauty and strength. And you can let them be yours. Yeah, you deserve that, because they're on your side, you see. To be a human now in this darkness of uncertainty, they're all plugging for us. Please feel them the ancestors and the future beings. Let them laugh in your ear as well as slap you on the backside and pull you forward because we have great work to do. If you care to, go ahead and write a little bit, um, if you want to, or just breathe and take it in. It's a lot. There's a lot in there. Just take a few minutes.
questions. There may be more you want to note and come back to, but I think for now we'll um, we'll begin the next next chapter of this evening. I did put in the chat the five gifts that Joanna listed because <clears throat> I forget them and they're wonderful. And I also put a link to the Joan Halifax Wise Hope article and to that video you just saw of Joanna. So you can either save the chat by going down to the bottom of the chat and clicking on the three little dots, at least on a computer, and then select save chat and or you can just um, copy and highlight copy and paste into whatever you want to, a document or whatever. So I... Mm, I got so much on my mind tonight, <laughs> as usual. Um, so I just was, it was interesting and, and illuminating for me to, to build on, in my own heart, having watched this video several times now and also read the Wise Hope article several times, the ways in which this relates to my growing understanding of what social justice nonviolent activists such as um, King, Rosa Parks, Gandhi, many more, I mean, we could name so many names, but you know what I mean, who are choosing a path that is grounded very much in these five gifts, actually. <laughs> and of course, I wanted to think about the Buddha also, because this is a Dharma talk, and um, how does this relate to anything that the Buddha lived in his path? So that's what I'm going to try to dig into a little bit here. Um, I want to just read a little bit of the Wild Hope, so you know, kind of know a little bit of what we're talking about here. So this is from Joanne, Joan, I'm sorry, Joan Halifax's article. She says, Wise hope means that we open ourselves to what we do not know, what we cannot know. This is very much what Joanne is talking about, too, that radical uncertainty. What we do not know, what we cannot know. Wise hope means we open ourselves to not knowing and act from a place of astonishment. I really like that, because you always think, I'm going to act from a place of knowing. I'm going to calculate. I'm going to figure out the odds. I'm going to do a pro and con list. This is me anyway. I'm going to do three different strategies, right? I'm going to map this thing out, because as Joanna said, I want success. I want my actions to have a, an outcome. And for her to say, you know, that's not where the place to start from is like, where do I start from? And, and we'll get to that in a minute. Joan Halifax says, if we look deeply, we realize that anyone who is conventionally hopeful has an expectation that always hovers in the background. The shadow of fear that one's wishes will not be fulfilled. Ordinary hope, then, is a form of suffering, for this kind of hope is a partner with dread. Then later she says, I believe that wise hope appears through our courage to be in the field of radical uncertainty and in a space of groundless adaptivity to things as they are. So when I think about King and I think about Gandhi, where to begin? <laughs> where to begin? Um, how they were both rooted not in a sense that they knew what to do to surmount the insurmountable, to surmount the insurmountable. They were both up against impossible systems where everybody, common wisdom was, this you cannot change. Gandhi was up against the effing British colonial empire. <laughs> 
I mean, it doesn't get much more powerful than that. Back in the day, you know, they were it. They, they just covered everything. Uh, you know, Britannia rules the world. And he's this small brown lawyer um, who uh, came back to India to, and found himself wanting to achieve justice and achieve freedom for his people. And we, we know a lot about Gandhi. I don't know as much as I'd like to, but um, we do know that he led the, the, quote, ordinary people of India. He didn't hobnob with people in high places. He wasn't there with Manchin and Cine, Cine, whatever her name is, Cinema, you know, trying to hammer out a deal with the, the power brokers. He was with the people creating radical actions that were out of the box, that were... Um, not violent, they didn't have guns, they didn't have an army, we know all this. So the people, Gandhi and the people, had to resort to the imagination, to the moral imagination, to create actions. One of them was the salt march, and Gandhi didn't think that up. Though you know They couldn't use Indian salt, they had to buy salt from the British, that was the colonial way they had controlled the economy. Um, and someone else, some, one of the just people who were, you know, following him, you know, talked about let's march to the sea and let's make salt. So the Great Salt March happened and they boiled seawater at the shores of the ocean and they made salt. Nonviolent, direct action, you know. And um, rooted in, you know, a sense of, of, um, of intention, Joanna's big point about what matters is our passion and our heart for the work and um, and our, our determination and our care for others. And Gandhi had all of that, King had all of that, Rosa Parks and the list goes on, all had all of that. We have that, we have that, that bodhicitta that she talked about, that motivation to care. And with that, he did um, the outrageous and he risked many lives, his life and many others. Um, King never met Gandhi. He knew about Gandhi, but he never met him. And one of his colleagues, a very, very important person that we don't hear enough about, was Bayard Rustin, who was a gay socialist communist fabulous organizer. And he was King's right-hand man. and organizer, because King was an incredible orator, incredible man of heart and vision and wisdom, wasn't a great organizer. So Bayard Rustin met Gandhi. He went to India to study nonviolence. So he met Gandhi, walked with him, came back and told King, the only way we're going to do this is nonviolent resistance and direct action. No guns, no, you know, whatever. We just, you know, it's the only way this is going to work. So, um, you know, there's one scene. How many of you saw the movie about Gandhi? That incredible movie. Did anybody see it? Do you remember? Well, see, sometime you should rent it and see it. <laughs> um, it's amazing. And there's this incredible scene where he and a vast amount of, these are poor people. These are, I suppose one could say peasants. These are just the, the Indian people are all trying to march. And it might have been the Salt March. I don't remember. But they are on their path together. And the army, not just the British army, but the Indian army that is under the sway of the British, 
are coming from all sides on horses. So here's these small people on foot, defenseless. Here's these armed men on horses, huge horses. Indian horses are terrifying when you're in their path. And um, the horses are riled up and they're, you know, agitated and the soldiers have their guns ready and um, the people are milling around, they're terrified, and you can just tell it's going to erupt and that people are going to get trampled. And Gandhi doesn't know what to do. You know, really, he doesn't have any, you know, trick up his sleeve. And one of these nobody people who are marching with him says, get on your knees, get on your knees, get down, get down. And everybody goes down on the ground and kneels and, you know, kind of just bends. And it completely calms the horses, you know, now that they're not upright, they're not a threat. And everything calms down. And this is, it kind of chokes me up, you know, that it's just that simple knowing. It's that thing we talked about last week about appropriate response. What is enlightenment? An appropriate response. It's knowing what in that moment is the right thing. And he didn't know what was going to happen. He didn't know he was going to save everyone's life, but he knew that was the right thing to do. Yeah. So then there's another story I've heard from our own military um, back, at, I think, during the Iraq War, during the Battle of Fallujah. And um, a battalion of, of, um, of American soldiers were going into a part of the city and the residents had had it with these guys. They had had it with the American occupation. And that village, or at least that part of the village, was up in arms. They didn't have arms, but they had shovels, pickaxes, they were farmers, you know, and they were they were going to meet them. So here's these armed soldiers all covered up, coming toward these people with no protection but these whatever. And the leader of the battalion with his gun, you know, everybody's got their guns like that, like they do. Suddenly he said, lower your guns and take a knee. And all of his battalion looked at him like, you are crazy. And he said, lower your guns and take a knee. And they did. They all lowered their guns and they went down on one knee. And it completely defused the situation, right? So these are those moments, and I'm going to talk about the Buddha in a minute, because these are examples of what the Buddha did with Mara. But um, that is just that intuitive, appropriate response. So now, uh, just a word about the Buddha. Um, another, another human being who had a very strong intention, which was to understand the nature of suffering. His intention in going out into the world wasn't to save people from suffering. It wasn't to preach and teach. It wasn't to become a famous guru. He just wanted to understand how to live a life of any happiness knowing about sickness, old age, and death. So that was his intention, was a process, a path. And we know that he met Mara under the Bodhi tree when he finally sat, having tried starvation, having tried, you know, transcendence, having tried all these things, and nothing got him where he needed to go. So he just sat under that tree and said, I'm not going to move until I see the truth, until I see the truth. And so Mara, which of course is the powers that try to distract Gandhi, King, you, me, distract us from our purpose. They're the powers that want the status quo to stay the status quo. And Mara had three tools, and you'll recognize them because it's the same thing the status quo uses. Mara did um, uh, temptation toward pleasure, take the easy way. And then when that didn't work, he chose violence 
and shot arrows and brought demons and tried to scare the living daylights out of him and harm him with violence. And that didn't work. I'll say more about that in a minute. And then he tried, what was the third one? Mockery. Mockery. The cruelest one of all, trying to undermine your confidence. Make, see, sow doubt. Doubt is one of Mara's weapons. And it's one of the status quo's weapons. Doubt the news. Doubt your leaders. Doubt the doctors. Doubt the CDC. Doubt reality completely makes you powerless and then you're in the sway of whoever is telling you to doubt. So that those are the three weapons of Mara. And um, you know, so let's think about a little further. So there's Buddha, former prince, surrounded by a harem, never saw any suffering, and Mara says could be saying, Hey, you're a prince. You don't have to go through this. You don't need enlightenment. You've got a great life. Why suffer? Why go through all this? And I feel like that's what privilege, how privilege talks to people who have a little bit, is, hey, you don't have to get out there on the front lines. You don't have to share the little that you have. You know, you don't have to do that. You've got, you've got yours, you've got your house, you've got your whatever, you've got yours. Why don't you just be happy? Why don't you just close the blinds, turn off the news, right? You know, I mean, that's the kind of, allurement of that. Gandhi was a lawyer. He could have had an easy life. He was a highly trained, skilled person. King was a, a minister. He was middle class. He was what they would have called a, quote, respectable Negro. He didn't have to do this, right? So this that's the temptation of comfort pulling you away from the inevitable pain and fear of seeking enlightenment, seeking justice, seeking the better world that one envisions. So then there's the arrows, uh, the threat of death. That was Mara's second weapon. And that certainly was true in Gandhi's case, as I just told you, these, these terribly violent possible situations. And people did die in, during, during those, those actions. And when you think about the South uh, during segregation, my goodness, you know, the lynchings, the, the burnings, the KKK, and then with the civil rights movement building up the killing of the young the voting rights activists that came down, the bombings, you know, Medgar Evers shot, um, you know, this was, this is Mara's weapon. You know, if you won't go home and be nice and if you won't, you know, kind of do it our way, we've got arrows. Yeah. Both King and Gandhi, let's not forget, were assassinated in the end. Then the third weapon, undermining confidence. Who do you think you are? Who do you think you are, said Mara to Buddha. Says the white ministers in the South who told King in various ways, hey, not so fast. What's all this urgency about? Who do you think you are? Could we just slow things down? Couldn't you just negotiate, right? He wrote, King wrote in his, I think it was from the letter, from Birmingham. He said, I must confess that over the past few years I have been gravely disappointed with the white moderate. I have almost reached the regrettable conclusion that the Negro's great stumbling block in his stride toward freedom is not the white citizen's counselor or the Ku Klux Klanner, but the white moderate who is more devoted to order than to justice, who prefers a negative peace, which is the absence of tension, to a positive peace, 
which is the presence of justice. So there were other ways people tried to undermine King. One of them was that Bayard Rustin being gay and communist, he then be, he shifted to socialist, but still, there was plenty of bad-mouthing of him in the movement, in the civil rights movement and in other you know, social change movements. And um, they played, they played the, the homophobia card, um, and King bought it for a while. He actually backed away from Rustin for a while, so he listened to that voice of doubt. And he lost his values. He lost his intention for a minute. So um, King encountered Mara again and again. And what I, what I love is that, back to the Buddha, how did he deal with those arrows of violence? The story says he let, they all went through him. He didn't push them away. He didn't fight them. He didn't hide. They just went through him because of non-resistance. And they turned into flowers. And that is what nonviolent resistance did with Gandhi and with King, was if when you bow, and this is what, what um, Joanna says about befriending our pain, that they both embraced the possibility of suffering. They didn't try to protect themselves from it. And because of that, their willingness to suffer, and King talked about our willingness to suffer, is one of our strongest tools. And some don't like that. It's, that's a controversial view of suffering, but that was what he believed and practiced. And so the arrows of the clubs and the dogs and the guns and the whatevers sort of, sort of what's the word, metaphorically went through him and his marchers and his colleagues because they didn't engage with them. And they just kind of bowed to it. It went through. Some died. Some were beaten. Some lived. But flowers bloomed. That was the, the fruit of that allowing the arrows to go through was the justice that was achieved. So I have to, oh my goodness, it's getting late. How does time go so fast? So, um, the present moment, Joanna talks about the gift of the present moment. King talked about the fierce urgency of now. 1963 March, March on Washington, he said, we are now faced with the fact that tomorrow is today. We are confronted with the fierce urgency of now. In this unfolding conundrum of life and history, there is such a thing as being too late. There is no time for apathy or complacence. This is a time for vigorous and positive action. He and Joanna would have gotten along. <laughs> they would have loved each other. And the immensity of time, she talks about the gift of the immensity of time, that famous phrase, the arc of history is long, but it bends toward justice. The long view. The Buddha knew that when he touched the earth and he said for many lifetimes, immensity of time, countless lifetimes, I have come over and over and practice the bodhisattva way. The earth knows me. The earth knows my value. The earth knows why I have a right to this. He li lived in the immensity of time, as did King. The power of intention. It's kind of obvious that they, King and his, his colleagues and marchers and Gandhi were faithful to their values. They acted on their values regardless of the outcome. Joan Halifax says, truly, we cannot know what will unfold from our actions now or in the future, yet we can trust that things will change. They always do. 
Havel, Vaclav Havel from Poland, the, the labor uh, leader who became the, the president or whatever they call their highest person there, he said, it is also important for us to remember that our actions, how we live, what we care about, what we care for, and how we care, really do matter all the same, no matter the outcome. So, befriending our pain, we talked about them surrendering to the arrows, moving toward the suffering, not banking their actions, you know, of a kind of tamping down their actions to avoid suffering. And then there's also just honestly, just the pain of sorrow and, and tears and crying. You know, that, that, that um, I am sure, I know that King cried, I know that Rosa Parks cried, I just know in my heart, I mean, I don't know that, but I believe it. And that out of that surrender to the pain, then they're just allowing it to flow through. That I think any of you know who've really let the, the tears come through, really let that, that cathartic cry, which is such an appropriate response, as Joanna said, to the outrage of what's being done, inflicted on our bodies and our planet and our fellow beings. It's a totally appropriate response. And, some, and how often after that cathartic surrender to the sorrow and the pain, new energy, new ideas, new creativity come that couldn't quite get there before. And I think you know Joanna Macy led for many years despair and empowerment workshops during the, the height of the nuclear fear, where she led people through a process of going into the despair. And there were times of wailing as a group, just wailing and sobbing at what was potential in a nuclear holocaust. And her belief and the truth of those workshops, because I was in them, was that there was an emerging out of that deep emotion into a passionate longing to live and longing to protect life and an energy to protect life. It's like the love awakened once the, the grief was allowed to be felt. So that is, uh, wow, here we are. Um, you know, I know, I know we're at time, but I just want, I just feel like I haven't sung this yet this month, and I just want us to sing for a moment together, We Shall Overcome. Shall, Pete Seeger talks about this. He says, it's not we will, it's we shall. And there is something about that shall that is, it's got something, I don't know how, what it is, but it's just a wonderful word. There's so much conviction in it, right? So here we go. Please sing with me if you like. We shall overcome, we shall overcome, we shall overcome someday, oh, deep in my heart, I do believe, we shall Peace. We shall.
you. You know, when I traveled in India and Nepal, I sang that song a lot because I learned in India with just a few t few times I had, I had got it translated into Hindi and, and um, Nepalese that everybody knows it much more than in America. All the school children know we shall overcome. Hamhunge kamiyab, hamhunge kamiyab. And um, it was just um, amazing to me to return to the motherland of Gandhi and know that that song was there with them. It was very beautiful, yeah. Well, dears, I have, I've eaten up all the time tonight. I was hoping to hear from you, but I think probably it, it is probably right to let you go. But I hope this has been beneficial and um, that you carry with you uh, Joanna and King and Gandhi and all all that has happened tonight. Right. So feel free to unmute and say goodnight. Don't forget to save the chat. There's some good stuff in there. And I can probably um, email it out to you too. Night. This was beautiful. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you, Antoinette. Thank you. Thank you, Betsy. That was beautiful. Oh. Thank you, Betsy. Thanks, Charlene. Thank Good to see you. See you. Mm. Take care. Bye, Tanya. Bye, Linda. Yeah. Thanks. Be well. See you soon. Bye. See you tomorrow morning. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.